Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming to worship with us at Fellowship Nashville as we continue our sermon series through the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is a name that means to embrace or to wrestle. And in this book, we've seen Habakkuk do both as he's wrestled with the tough questions of life, but at the same time embraced God through them. A very fascinating story uh, from church history is that of Alan Francis Gardner. Most of you probably haven't heard of this guy, but he was a British missionary. Um, But before he became a missionary, he was a naval officer for the Royal Navy that traveled the world. And as he traveled the world, he saw all these indigenous people groups in, in these remote places, and that stirred something in his heart. And so at age 40, when um, his naval commission expired, he decided, I'm going to take the gospel to some of those unreached people groups that I saw in my travels around the world. Um, Tragically, about the same time, his wife passed away. Uh, But uh, in in his grief, he still made plans to to pack up and go, and he he, um, moved to Africa, South Africa, and started reaching out to the Zulu tribe. Um, he, re- he remarried in that time frame, uh, but then a uh, war broke out between the Zulu tribe and Dutch colonists there, and he had to move. And so he took his family from South Africa to what we now call Chile, Chile, South, South America, began working with tribal groups there. And, and something never left his mind and heart as he was working with those, those people groups in Chile, and that was the fires he had seen, the campfires that he had seen on the southernmost tip of South America as his naval ship passed by there, on the Tierra del Fuego, um, Spanish for land of fire, I think. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, Spanish speaking. Okay, I got the thumb up. Thumbs up from a Spanish speaker. So, um, but the early explorers called it that because of the campfires that you would see at night as you pass by that southern tip of South America, rugged islands down there um, that are just off the coast, probably as close as you can get to Antarctica without being in Antarctica. And so he was like, boy, I would love to take the gospel to the people living there because I'm sure they've never heard it. And he, would, he, he tried to talk to missions agencies and get funding for this exploratory trip to, to meet uh, the, the tribal group that was down there, but couldn't get any missions agencies to get on board with it because that was just too far away. And so finally, he made his own missions agent, mission agency called the Patagonia Mission Society, recruited one guy to go with him, a guy named Robert Hunt, and they got on a boat, went down there, and tried to make contact with this people group. They made contact only to be robbed of all their possessions, and they had to be rescued by a passing boat with only the clothes on their back left. Well, some people would have given up at this point, but not Alan Gardner. He thought, you know, we're going to try again. So this time he took five people with him. Uh, A few years later, um, landed on the beach, Um, took a little bit more precautions to guard their supplies, but again, their supplies were stolen. They had to be rescued off the beach again by a passing ship. Most people would have given up at this point, but not Alan Gardner. This time, he brought seven people, a few that were fishermen, to catch catch extra food in case their supplies got pilfered again. And um, he had had a, a, a plan. What if we make a floating mission station 
Um, that way that, that safeguards our supplies a little bit better. So he looked for missions agencies to fund a large boat that he could just anchor out into, in the bay and use that as the mission station for trying to reach these people with the gospel. Well, he couldn't raise enough funds, so he had to settle on two smaller boats that they could escape to if necessary. A larger boat dropped them off, him and his party of seven, and uh, with plans to come back in about four months' time to resupply. They, they found a beachhead, they set up temporary huts. Again, the Fuegian tribes pilfered their supplies, they had to retreat to their smaller boats. And in looking for a, a safe anchorage, a place where they could find more fresh water and uh, maybe more receptive um, portion of the tribe, tragedy struck. Um, there was a storm that w was brewed up, which often happens down in that region. It's a very mount, don't, when you think islands, don't think tropical down there, okay? He's, this is Patagonia. Big mountains, cold, um, rugged shorelines. And so a storm whipped up. They were shipwrecked on a, ti more ti a tiny island called Picton Island. And um, the supplies were low. They rationed them. But as days passed and weeks passed and months passed, one by one, that party of seven missionaries slowly starved to death. Alan Gardner was the last um, one to, to pass away. We know this because he kept a journal of the whole, whole ordeal. A journal that was found with his body uh, by the the people that came to resupply them just about 20 months after, or not 20 months, 20 days after Gardner passed away. And what's fascinating about the entries in Gardner's journal, journal is their tone. You might expect it to say things like, God, this is how you're treating me and, and my fellow missionaries? I mean, we're trying to bring the gospel to people. Won't you take care of us, God? You might expect him to have that kind of tone, but that wasn't the tone. In one of his last journal entries, he wrote this, God is indeed about my bed. In other words, I'm about to die. Let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond expression the night I wrote these lines and would not have changed situations with any man living. He went on to quote Psalm 34.10, The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. While well, he's starving to death, mind you. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And the energy that he spent on his last journal entries, as he's literally starving to death, that energy was spent recounting and rejoicing in the goodness of God. Overwhelmed by the goodness of God. How on earth does someone get that type of uncommon faith? The type of faith that faces loss and extreme suffering, even death, and yet still holds firmly to God's goodness. And that's the question that we're going to grapple with in our time together this morning as we conclude our sermon series through the book of Habakkuk. How can we trust in the goodness of God when life isn't good? Would you say that with me? How can we trust in the goodness of God when life isn't good? Because in this last chapter of the small book of Habakkuk, in the Old Testament, we find that Habakkuk, the prophet, has that same type of Alan Gardner-type faith, that same type of uncommon faith. 
you know, perhaps life isn't good for you this morning. And so you're understandably questioning the goodness of God. My pastoral prayer is that as we study through Habakkuk 3, that your heart will be encouraged. That it will guide you towards developing an Alan Gardner Habakkuk 3 type faith. Now for the rest of you whose life is going well, well, still take notes because I can guarantee that this message is going to be applicable to you very soon because we live in a broken world. Our outline this morning is going to be pretty simple, okay? And I've got hand motions, all right? This is back from, I got my start in children's ministry, so you just got to bear with me here. Um, Just two words forms our outline, remember and relinquish. Okay, do that with me. Remember and relinquish, like you're giving up something. That that's, forms our outline, pretty simple. And so when somebody asks you, what was the sermon about? You can say, well, remember, I remember. Remember, relinquish. Okay, we'll flesh those out as we go along. If you haven't been with us in this sermon series, let me catch you up on Habakkuk's story. Habakkuk was a prophet and wrote this short book that bears his name in the time period between the two major exiles of Israel. And if you're not familiar with what I mean by that, let me give you a quick history lesson. The Old Testament tells the story of God choosing a people group, the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, to be his representatives on earth. And he chose to bless them for the purpose of them being a blessing. In other words, he chose, to, chose them as his chosen people because he intended, he had a job for them to do. He intended to reveal himself to all nations through them and bring his blessings, the knowledge of him to all nations through his people. But instead of being a holy people who accurately represented the true and living God to the nations, what did the Israelites do as you read the story of the Old Testament? They began worshiping the gods of the nations around them. Instead of accurately representing God's character, ancient Israelite society began reflecting the very same injustice, the very same um, violence, the very same ungodliness of the nations around them. And understandably, This upset God who chose them to be his chosen people for an express purpose of making himself known to the nations. And over and over again, God warned Israel of what would happen, the consequences. Kind of how many parents do we have in here? Um, Do you ever warn your children of consequences if they do something you've told them not to do? Well, over and over again, if you read through the Old Testament, God warns the Israelites of consequences. He tells them, that if they did not obey him and represent him well, that he is going to bring judgment upon them. And God always keeps his promises. And that judgment started in 722 BC when God raised up the Assyrians to invade the northern kingdom of Israel and carry them off into exile. The southern kingdom of Israel, also called Judah, was temporarily spared from that initial judgment. And this is where Habakkuk lived in Judah, most likely in Jerusalem. In the time period when God raised up the Babylonians to also carry the southern kingdom off into exile. In a series of invasions that began in 605 BC and ended definitively in 586 BC when Jerusalem was destroyed. But the book of Habakkuk was written right before that happened. Probably somewhere around 610 BC. The bigger the number, the further back it is when you, when you get to BC, in case you're confused like that. Um, the northern kingdom had gone, um, has been gone for about 100 years now, okay? 
Southern kingdom is all that's left, but on the horizon, Babylon is growing as a world power. It hadn't yet set its uh, sights on, on Jerusalem and the conquest there, but, but that's coming. That's when the time period when Habakkuk writes. And if you've missed any of the first three message, messages of our study of Habakkuk, let me do a quick recap. The book opens in chapter one with Habakkuk voicing complaints to God about injustice and violence that he's seeing in his Jewish society. He's looking around Jerusalem, looking around Judah and going, this is messed up. People are not obeying God. People are reflecting the, the character of the nations around them rather than the character of God. This is messed up. God, why are you not doing anything about it? And then... God goes on to answer Habakkuk's complaint by letting him in on a secret. In chapter 1, verse 5, right after Habakkuk complains, why God and how long, God, are you going to let this last? God answers, and God says this, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I'm going to do a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And if we just stop there, we think, okay, this is good news. God's going to do something about it. God's going to do something amazing. This is great. But as God expounds on what he means by that, we quickly realize it's not good news at all for Habakkuk and the Israelites. God's plan is to raise up the Babylonians, a wicked, violent, godless, ruthless people, to bring his judgment on the remaining Israelites in the southern kingdom. Well, Habakkuk, who lives in the southern kingdom, is obviously upset by this. He isn't happy about God's plan. And he isn't going to take this sitting down. And so at the middle of chapter 1, starting in verse 12, we see Habakkuk going, what the heck, God? Literally, that's basically what he says. God, what are you doing? With all due respect, this makes no sense, God. I mean, you're God and all, but... But you're enabling a nation that's even more perverse, even more violent, even more unjust to bring judgment on us and wipe us out? Sure, we've been disobedient and wicked, but we're not as bad as the Babylonians, God. What are you doing? That's a loose translation of what Habakkuk actually says, the MIV, Mark Irving version. But it's a fairly accurate depiction of Habakkuk's response to God's plan. And at the beginning of chapter 2, God responds to Habakkuk's second complaint and basically tells Habakkuk, hey, don't get your loincloth in a wad here. Things are going to be okay. Trust me. I'm only using Babylon, but I am not endorsing Babylon. And he proceeds to pronounce five prophetic woes or pronouncements of future judgment against Babylon through Habakkuk that Levi expounded on last week. Woe to those who take advantage of the financially vulnerable, to those who corrupt systems to take from others in the name of security, who build nations upon a foundation of enslavement and violence, who abuse and exploit others for mere pleasure, who trust in and worship the created over the creator. You're upset by these things that you see in Babylonian culture, Habakkuk? Well, rest assured, God says. I am too. I'm pretty ticked off at them too. And they're going to get theirs. Judgment's going to come on them as well. And that brings us to chapter 3. But instead of starting at the beginning of the chapter, I'd like us to look at the end. Kind of like skipping to the end of a novel and ruining the surprise. Um, 
But I've got a purpose for it. That's actually not really ruining the surprise. Let's look at the end. And I want you to notice something. I want you to notice the change in tone between chapter one, where Habakkuk's going, what on earth are you doing, God? And here in chapter three, verse 18, this is how the book ends, how Habakkuk ends his little book. Verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Let's smooth out that last line of that um, translation. The ESV is sort of rough there. He enables me to negotiate mountainous, rugged terrain is how Habakkuk ends his book. Did you notice the change of tone? How does Habakkuk get from saying, what the heck, God, to this declaration of faith? Habakkuk has basically just received a death sentence from God. An invasion of the ruthless Babylonian army meant that Habakkuk's life was over as he knew it. For him, his family, his friends, his nation. So how does he go from receiving that news to this? How does he go from the the point of questioning God to rejoicing in God's goodness when life is anything but good? Well, let's back up to the beginning of chapter three and see if we can figure this out. Look Look with me at verse one. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to a word I can't pronounce. That's a musical term uh, there uh, that's meant to signal uh, for us, oh, this is poetry. This is Habakkuk writing a song. And that musical term means to praise with strong emotion and passion triumph. And so chapter three is a poetic prayer response from Habakkuk, something he probably took a lot of time thinking about meditating on before he started writing. A prayer that was meant to be sung. Demonstration. Oh Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Okay, God, I've heard the reports of how you've worked in the past. I've read the narratives how you were the defender and divine warrior for your people. Will you please do that again? Will you please remember mercy in the midst of your wrath against wickedness? In the midst of your judgment and raising up the Babylonians, will you remember mercy? And then Habakkuk goes on to poetically recount the events surrounding the Exodus, the greatest salvific event in the Old Testament. As as Habakkuk looked back on God's faithfulness, what was the pinnacle of his faithfulness up until that point in history? It was the Exodus, how God rescued the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land miraculously, supernaturally, with great power and wonders. Habakkuk begins to recall the Exodus poetically. He works it in, it's not chronological, but he works it in in a lot of ways through this song as he goes, goes on. Let's, let's read it. I'll, I'll point out the references to that story as we go along. Verse three. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Mount Paran is a reference to Mount Sinai, just a different name for it, where God met with Moses right after the Exodus from Egypt and gave him the stone tablets of law. 
You can read about it in Exodus chapter 24, where God's presence enveloped like a cloud the top of the mountain, and it looked as though the top of the mountain was burning with fire. So there's likely flashes of lightning. A pretty awesome sight as the Israelites are there in the wilderness, having just been rescued, looking up at the mountain and seeing a tangible sign of God's presence there as he met with Moses. Habakkuk describes this in verse 4. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, probably talking about lightning, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Again, that's probably a reference back to the plagues that God unleashed on Egypt to bring them out when Pharaoh refused to let them go. Verse six, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The eternal hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. The Israelites traveled through the land of Midian on their way to the promised land and caused much fear and alarm in the nations that dwelt that land along the way. I mean, you'd probably be scared too if you saw hundreds of thousands of people marching through your backyard being led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Verse eight, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on the chariot of salvation? Here's a reference to God parting the Red Sea for the Israelites to cross on dry ground as they are being pursued by the Egyptians. And also a reference likely to God parting the Jordan River because he's talking, were you angry at the river or were you angry at the sea? Um, God parted the Jordan River to allow the Israelites to cross on dry land again under Joshua's leadership into the promised land. And it's poetic here that Habakkuk pictures these powerful acts as God riding on his horses and chariots of salvation. Obviously, an ironic reference to the horses and chariots of the Egyptians that chased them into the Red Sea, and then God let the waters close back up destroying the Egyptian army. Verse nine, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. Again, just references to God's power. Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, the flash of your glittering spear. You know, the sun and moon standing still is likely a reference to when God temporarily stopped the rotation of the earth during Joshua's, um, for Joshua during the conquest of the promised land. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 10. Verse 12, you marched through the earth with fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Again, Habakkuk poetically recalling how God mightily, supernaturally came to the defense of his people, a vulnerable poor people during the Exodus. And then in verse 16, we get Habakkuk's emotional response to thinking about all this. 
I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk is completely overwhelmed emotionally by remembering the power of God working on behalf of his people in the past to the point that his lips are quivering, his legs are shaking at the thoughts of God as the divine rescuing warrior. And in his remembrance of the Exodus and God's mighty works in it, Habakkuk makes the connection that God moved in power then. He can move in power now. You are the same God. You are the same God. If you were singing with us this morning in our opening song. And so Habakkuk figures rightly that God is still in control. Even though he's using the Babylonians, Habakkuk also concludes that God will also judge the Babylonians for their wickedness. Notice his line, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He knows the Babylonians are going to get theirs. And so we see from this poetic prayer that Habakkuk gets to the place of rejoicing in God's goodness, primarily through remembering God's faithfulness. And so here's the first part of our answer to our question this morning. How do we hold on to goodness, the goodness of God when life isn't good? Remember our first R word? Remember. <laughs> Remember. We must remember God's faithfulness in the past. you say that with me? Remember, got to do the motions too. Remember God's faithfulness in the past. Remember God's faithfulness in the past. In the midst of this horrible situation, Habakkuk looked back and he remembered the Exodus, the greatest, most miraculous act of God's salvation that he knew of in his time, in his, time, in his place in history. And that gave him hope. I don't know about you, but I, I have a tendency, it's not a good one, a tendency to interpret God's actions and his character from my very myopic perspective on my, of my current circumstances. In other words, I have a tendency to say God is good when life is going well. And I have a tendency to question the goodness of God when it isn't going good. Going well, to use correct grammar. But God is much greater, and his redemptive plan is much bigger than my circumstances, your circumstances at any point in history, in the, the, any point in your life, at any specific moment in time. Because if you carefully look at the grand narrative, the meta-narrative, the story of the entire Bible, it becomes clear that God is weaving together an intricate tapestry of redemption and salvation for a people of faith. But in the limited perspective of looking through the lens of our current circumstances, we can only, at best, see just a small portion of the underside of the tapestry that's full of knots and tangled threads. It's hard for us to look through the lens of our circumstances and actually see the big picture. And it's easy to conclude, what a mess. God, I don't know that you know what you're really doing here because I look, all I see is a tangled mess of knots here. God, I wonder if you're really in control. God, I doubt that you're actually good. 
But in dark times, we've got to learn from Habakkuk and remember the salvific faithfulness of God in the past because it helps us see the developing front side of the tapestry that he's weaving, even amidst our darkness, even amidst our pain. Here's the deal. We have a lot more of the picture of the tapestry than Habakkuk had. We don't just have the Exodus, the greatest salvific event of the Old Testament. We have what the Exodus was actually picturing in the New Testament with the Passover and everything around it. We can look back and we see an even better picture of God's salvation because we can look back at the cross and remember the place where Jesus, God in the flesh, suffered pain to one day bring an eternal end to all pain. We can look back to where he suffered injustice to one day bring an eternal end to all injustice. Where he suffered wrath so that you and I could be shown, so that you and I could be shown grace. Where he suffered death so that you and I could be freely given new life. And not only that, we can look back on an empty tomb and remember the place where Jesus conquered death itself so that we can have the hope of eternal life. You know, what's the worst thing that can happen to us? Death. Death. But death, as we look back on the empty, empty tomb, is now a defeated enemy because of God's salvific work in history. You know, in dark circumstances, we must remember God's faithfulness in the past. And when we do, it will give us hope that God will judge evil. God will end injustice. God will end all sickness and sorrow. God will give us resurrected bodies. God will make all things new. So the first way of holding on to God's goodness when life isn't good is what? Remember what? God's faithfulness in the past. Now, what's the second word of our outline today? Say it with me. Relinquish. Relinquish, Relinquish what? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's look at that. Verse 17, Habakkuk 3. Though the fig tree does, should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. It's evident here that Habakkuk knows exactly what's going to happen when the Babylonians invade. It means starvation as the armies lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. And that's what he's describing here in the language of an agrarian society. No fruit on the vines, no crops in the fields, no animals in the stalls. The Babylonian invasion means almost certain death. Though all of this happens to me, Habakkuk says, like you've said, God, though all of this happens, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk is letting go of something here. He's letting go of a transactional relationship with God. You've got to catch this. It's important. Let's be honest, most, most, most of our faith journeys, mine included, we come to put our faith in God because 
we're hoping that God does something for us, makes this guilty feeling go away, makes our life a little bit better. We usually, in our immature faith, come to God, which God still uses, but in immature faith, we come to God expecting him to do something for us. We come to God, faith in God in a transactional way. Don't feel shame about that. It's just how we as fallen human beings approach God typically. But if we stay in that immature faith, it spells trouble. Why? Because when the hard time comes, it's like, what? Our expectations are shattered, and then we start doubting the goodness of God. This is the primary reason why we have crises of faith is because of a transactional aspect to our faith. But there's something empty and shallow about transactional relationships, right? I mean, just think about it personally. You probably know the feeling. Somebody starts being really nice to you and you think, oh wow, they want to be my friend. They really like me. And then you figure out that they're just using you to get to what they really want, inviting you to participate in their multi-level marketing scheme, um, using you to get um, closer to your pretty sister. I speak from experience, my college days. Um, whatever. It's not a good feeling when you find out that you're just being used. God is a relational God. And he wants us to love him for him, not for what he gives us. And herein lies the gift of dark times and difficult circumstances. They press the question, why are you worshiping God? They expose the true motives of our hearts. Are we worshiping God because he's God? Or are we simply using God to get what we're really worshiping? It's evident that Habakkuk has relinquished a transactional relationship with God. Just think about it. Habakkuk basically gets a death sentence, but he's still rejoicing in God's goodness. That's uncommon faith. That's a faith that's matured beyond a transactional relationship with him. So back to our question for the morning. How do we, like Habakkuk, like Alan Gardner, trust that God is good even when life isn't? We must... Remember God's faithfulness in the past. Do it with me. We must remember God's faithfulness in the past. And we also must relinquish a transactional relationship with him in the present. Remember God's faithfulness in the past. Relinquish a transactional relationship with God in the present. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's impossible without an eternal perspective on our circumstances. Impossible. But God has revealed eternity to us, and it's good news through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world, that whoever believes, that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him 
shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. As the worship team makes their way back to the stage, I'd like to read an excerpt that was written by one of the men that found Alan Gardner's journal near his decaying corpse. After reading the journal entries and recounting the regrettable way in which Alan Gardner and his six missionary companions died by starvation, he writes this, we lament that such heroic spirits should have suffered to encounter such hazards without at least a vessel large enough to carry their provisions and protect them from insult. But as we approach the end of the story, all these regretful thoughts give place to wonder and admiration and thankfulness for the grace of God, which was so strikingly displayed, and not Gardner alone, but all in the party, so that they were examples to each other of patient endurance and unfailing faith. They endured as seeing him who is invisible. Listen to this. They suffered the loss of all things in this world without repining. Why? For their treasure was above. And though outwardly man perished, the inward man was renewed day by day till the earthly tabernacle was left for a home not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Remember, relinquish, and rejoice that eternity awaits those who trust in Jesus for salvation. He's coming back. He's good with his word. He will make all things new. Father, remind us of your faithfulness in the past. And as we look at a picture of the cross this morning, as we partake in the table of communion together. Help us to remember your faithfulness. Father, also help us to relinquish a transactional relationship with you that worships you only to get good stuff from you. Mature our faith, God. We're all immature in many ways. We ask through the power of your spirit, your word, and your people that you would work on us in community to move us from unbelief to belief in every corner of our hearts. We need your help with that, Lord. Amen. As the worship team leads us in these two closing songs, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, I invite you to come to the table to remember God's faithfulness to you in the past. This is a picture of that. But also, I want to encourage you to relinquish a transactional relationship with him. Relinquish your expectations of how you think your life and circumstances should be going, knowing that you've been given the promise of eternal life through the broken body and shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Come worship at the table, not for what God has done for you, but who God is. Come as we sing. You may stand.